Section 28 of London Labour and the London Poor, Volume 2, by Henry Mayhew. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Gillian Hendry. Of the Dredgers, or River Finders The Dredger men of the Thames, or River Finders, naturally occupy the same place with reference to the street finders as the pearlmen or river beer sellers do to those who get their living by selling in the streets it would be in itself a curious inquiry to trace the origin of the manifold occupations in which men are found to be engaged in the present day and to note how promptly every circumstance and occurrence was laid hold of as it happened to arise which appear to have any tendency to open up a new occupation and to mark the gradual progress till it became a regularly established employment, followed by a separate class of people, fenced round by rules and customs of their own, and who at length grew to be both in their habits and peculiarities plainly distinct from the other classes among whom they chanced to be located. There has been no historian among the dredgers of the Thames to record the commencement of the business, and the utmost that any of the river finders can tell is that his father had been a dredger, and so had his father before him, and that that's the reason why they are dredgers also. But no such people as dredgers were known on the Thames in remote days, and before London had become an important trading port where nothing was likely to be got for the searching, it is not probable that people would have been induced to search. In those days, the only things searched for in the river were the bodies of persons drowned, accidentally or otherwise. For this purpose, the Thames fishermen of all others appeared to be the best adapted. They were on the spot at all times, and had various sorts of tackle, such as nets, lines, hooks, and so on. The fishermen well understood everything connected with the river, such as the various sets of the tide, and the nature of the bottom, and they were therefore on such occasions invariably applied to for these purposes. It is known to all who remember anything of old London Bridge that at certain times of the tide, in consequence of the velocity with which the water rushed through the narrow apertures which the arches then afforded for its passage, to bring a boat in safety through the bridge was a feat to be attempted only by the skilful and experienced. This feat was known as shooting, London Bridge, and it was no unusual thing for accidents to happen even to the most expert. In fact, numerous accidents occurred at this bridge, and at such times valuable articles were sometimes lost, for which high rewards were offered to the finder. Here again the fishermen came into requisition, the small dragnet which they used while rowing offering itself for the purpose. For by fixing an iron frame round the mouth of the dragnet, this part of it, from its specific gravity, sunk first to the bottom, and consequently scraped along as they pulled forward, collecting into the net everything that came in its way. When it was nearly filled, which the rower always knew by the weight, it was hauled up to the surface, its contents examined, and the object lost, gradually recovered. It is thus apparent that the fishermen of the Thames were the men originally employed as dredgermen, though casually indeed at first, and according as circumstances occurred requiring their services, 
By degrees, however, as the commerce of the river increased and a greater number of articles fell overboard from the shipping, they came to be more frequently called into requisition, and so they were naturally led to adopt the dredging as part and parcel of their business. Thus it remains to the present day. The fishermen all serve a regular apprenticeship, as they say themselves, duly and truly, for seven years. During the time of their apprenticeship they are, or rather in former times they were, obliged to sleep in their master's boat at night to take care of his property, and were subject to many other curious regulations, which are foreign to this subject. I have said that the fishermen of the Thames to the present day unite the dredging to their proper calling. By this I mean that they employ themselves in fishing during the summer and autumn, either from Barking Creek downwards or from Chelsea Beach upwards, catching dabs, flounders, eels and other sorts of fish for the London markets. But in winter, when the days are short and cold, and the weather stormy, they prefer stopping at home and dredging the bed of the river for anything they may chance to find. There are others, however, who have started wholly in the dredging line, there being no hindrance or impediment to anyone doing so, nor any license required for the purpose. These dredge the river winter and summer alike, and are in fact the only real dredgermen of the present day living solely by that occupation. There are in all about 100 dredgermen at work on the river, and these are located as follows. From Putney to Vauxhall there are 20 dredgermen. From Vauxhall to London Bridge, 40 dredgermen. From London Bridge to Deptford, 20 dredgermen. And from Deptford to Gravesend, 20 dredgermen total 100 dredgermen. All these reside, in general, on the south side of the Thames, the two places most frequented by them being Lambeth and Rotherith. They do not, however, confine themselves to the neighbourhoods wherein they reside, but extend their operations to all parts of the river, where it is likely that they may pick up anything. And it is perfectly marvellous with what rapidity the intelligence of any accident calculated to afford them employment is spread among them. For should a loaded coal barge be sunk overnight, by daylight the next morning every dredgerman would be sure to be upon the spot, prepared to collect what he could from the wreck at the bottom of the river. The boats of the dredgerman are of a peculiar shape. They have no stern, but are the same fore and aft. They are called Peter Boats, but not one of the men with whom I spoke had the least idea as to the origin of the name. These boats are to be had at almost all prices, according to their condition and age, from 30 shillings to 20 pounds. The boats used by the fishermen dredgermen are decidedly the most valuable. One with the other, perhaps the whole may average 10 pounds each, and this sum will give 1,000 pounds, as the value of the entire number. A complete set of tackle, including drags, will cost £2, which comes to £200 for all hands. And thus we have the sum of £1,200 as the amount of capital invested in the dredging of the Thames. It is by no means an easy matter to form any estimate of the earnings of the dredgermen, as they are a matter of mere chance. In former years, when Indiamen and all the foreign shipping lay in the river, the river finders were in the habit of doing a good business, not only in their own line, 
through the greater quantities of rope, bones, and other things which then were thrown or fell overboard, but they also contrived to smuggle ashore great quantities of tobacco, tea, spirits, and other contraband articles, and thought it a bad day's work when they did not earn a pound, independent of their dredging. An old dredger told me he had often in those days made five pounds before breakfast time. After the excavation of the various docks, and after the larger shipping had departed from the river, the finders were obliged to content themselves with the chances of mere dredging, and even then, I am informed, they were in the habit of earning one week with another throughout the year about twenty-five shillings per week each, or six thousand five hundred pounds per annum among all. Latterly, however, the earnings of these men have greatly fallen off, especially in the summer, for then they cannot get so good a price for the coal they find as in the winter, sixpence per bushel being the summer price, and as they consider three bushels a good day's work, their earnings at this period of the year amount to only one shilling sixpence per day, excepting when they happen to pick up some bones or pieces of metal, or to find a dead body, for which there is a reward. In the winter, however, the dredgermen can readily get one shilling per bushel for all the coals they find, and far more coals are to be found then than in summer, for there are more colliers in the river and far more accidents at that season. Coal barges are often sunk in the winter, and on such occasions they make a good harvest. Moreover, there is the finding of bodies for which they not only get the reward, but five shillings, which they call inquest money together with many other chances, such as the finding of money and valuables among the rubbish they bring up from the bottom. But, as the last mentioned are accidents happening throughout the year, I am inclined to think that they have understated the amount which they are in the habit of realising, even in the summer. The dredgers, as a class, may be said to be altogether uneducated, not half a dozen out of the whole number being able to read their own name and only one or two to write it. This select few are considered by the rest as perfect prodigies. "'Lord bless you,' said one. "'I only wish you dear Bill S. read. "'I only just wish you dear him. "'Why, that ear Bill can read faster nor a dog can trot. "'And what's more, I seed him write an old letter hisself. "'Every word in it. "'What do you think of that now?' The ignorance of the dredgermen may be accounted for by the men taking so early to the water, the bustle and excitement of the river being far more attractive to them than the routine of a school. Almost as soon as they are able to do anything, the dredgermen's boys are taken by their fathers afloat, to assist in picking out the coals, bones and other things of any use from the midst of the rubbish brought up in their dragnets or else the lads are sent on board as assistants to one or other of the fishermen during their fishing voyages. When once engaged in this way, it has been found impossible afterwards to keep the youths from the water, and if they have learned anything previously, they very soon forget it. It might be expected that the dredgers, in a manner depending on chance for their livelihood, and leading a restless sort of life on the water, would closely resemble the costermongers in their habits, but it is far otherwise. There can be no two classes more dissimilar, except in their hatred of restraint. The dredgers are sober and steady. Gambling is unknown amongst them. 
and they are, to an extraordinary degree, laborious, persevering, and patient. They are, in general, men of short stature, but square-built, strong, and capable of enduring great fatigue, and have a silent and thoughtful look. Being almost always alone, and studying how they may best succeed in finding what they seek, marking the various sets of the tide, and the direction in which things falling into the water at a particular place must necessarily be carried, they become the very opposite to the other river people, especially to the watermen, who are brawling and clamorous, and delight in continually chaffing each other. In consequence of the sober and industrious habits of the dredgermen, their homes are, as they say, pretty fair for working men, though there is nothing very luxurious to be found in them, nor indeed anything beyond what is absolutely necessary. After their day's work, especially if they have done well, these men smoke a pipe over a pint or two of beer at the nearest public house, get home early to bed, and if the tide answers, may be found on the river patiently dredging away at two or three o'clock in the morning. Whenever a loaded coal barge happens to sink, as I have already intimated, it is surprising how short a time elapses before that part of the river is alive with the dredgers. They flock thither from all parts. The river on such occasions presents a very animated appearance. At first they are all in a group, and apparently in confusion, crossing and recrossing each other's course, some with their oars pulled in while they examine the contents of their nets, and empty the coals into the bottom of their boats, others rowing and tugging against the stream to obtain an advantageous position for the next cast. And when they consider they have found this, down go the dredging nets to the bottom, and away they row again with the stream, as if pulling for a wager, till they find by the weight of their net that it is full. Then they at once stop, haul it up to the surface, and commence another course. Others who have been successful in getting their boats loaded may be seen pushing away from the main body and making towards the shore. Here they busily employ themselves with what help they can get in emptying the boat of her cargo, carrying it ashore in old coal baskets, bushel measures, or anything else which will suit their purpose. And when this is completed, they pull out again to join their comrades and commence afresh. They continue working thus till the returning tide puts an end to their labours, but these are resumed after the tide has fallen to a certain depth, and so they go on, working night and day, while there is anything to be got. The dredgerman and his boat may be immediately distinguished from all others. There is nothing similar to them on the river. The sharp cutwater fore and aft, and short-rounded appearance of the vessel, marks it out at once from the skiff or wherry of the waterman. There is, too, always the appearance of labour about the boat, like a ship returning after a long voyage, daubed and filthy, and looking sadly in need of a thorough cleansing. The grappling irons are over the bow, resting on a coil of rope, while the other end of the boat is filled with coals, bones, and old rope, mixed with the mud of the river. The ropes of the dredging net hang over the side, a short, stout figure, with a face soiled and blackened with perspiration, and surmounted by a tarred sou'wester, the body habited in a soiled check shirt, with the sleeves turned up above the elbows, 
and exhibiting a pair of sunburnt, brawny arms, is pulling at the skulls, not with the ease and lightness of the waterman, but toiling and tugging away like a galley slave, as he scours the bed of the river with his dredging net, in search of some hoped-for prize. The dredgers, as was before stated, are the men who find almost all the bodies of persons drowned. If there be a reward offered for the recovery of a body, numbers of the dredgers will at once endeavour to obtain it, while, if there be no reward, there is at least the inquest money to be had, beside other chances. What these chances are may be inferred from the well-known fact that nobody recovered by a dredgerman ever happens to have any money about it when brought to shore. There may indeed be a watch in the fob or waistcoat pocket, for that article would be likely to be traced. There may too be a purse or pocket-book forthcoming, but somehow it is invariably empty. The dredgers cannot by any reasoning or arguments be made to comprehend that there is anything like dishonesty in emptying the pockets of a dead man. They consider them as their just perquisites. They say that anyone who finds a body does precisely the same, and that if they did not do so, the police would. After having had all the trouble and labour, they allege that they have a much better right to whatever is to be got than the police who have had nothing whatever to do with it. There are also people who shrewdly suspect that some of the coals from the barges lying in the river very often find their way into the dredgers' boats, especially when the dredgers are engaged in night work, and there are even some who do not hold them guiltless of now and then, when opportunity offers, smuggling things ashore from many of the steamers coming from foreign parts. But such things, I repeat, the dredgers consider in the fair way of their business. One of the most industrious, and I believe one of the most skilful and successful, of this peculiar class gave me the following epitome of his history. Quote, father was a dredger, and grandfather afore him. Grandfather was a dredger and a fisherman too. Almost as soon as I was able to crawl, father took me with him in the boat to help him to pick the coals and bones and other things out of the net, and to use me to the water. When I got bigger and stronger, I was sent to the parish school, but I didn't like it half as well as the boat, and couldn't be got to stay two days together. At last I went above bridge, and went along with a fisherman, and used to sleep in the boat every night. I liked to sleep in the boat. I used to be as comfortable as could be. Lord bless you, there's a tilt to them boats, and no rain can't get at you. I used to lie awake of a night in them times, and listen to the water slapping agin the boat, and think it fine fun. I might a got bound prentice, but I got aboard a smack, where I stayed three or four year. And if I'd a stayed there, I'd a liked it much better. But I heard as how father was ill, so I comed home, and took to the dredging, and I'm at it off and on ever since. I got no larning, how could I? There's only one or two of us dredgers as knows anything of larning, and they're no better off than the rest. Learning's no use to a dredger. He hasn't got no time to read, and if he had, why, it wouldn't tell him where the holes and furrows is at the bottom of the river, and where things is to be found. To be sure there's holes and furrows at the bottom. I know a good many. I know a furrow off Limas Point, no wider nor the dredge, and I can go there. 
and when others can't get anything but stones and mud, I can get four or five bushels of coal. You see, they lay there, they get in with the set of the tide, and can't get out so easy-like. Dredgers don't do so well now as they used to do. You know Pelican Stairs? Well, before the docks was built, when the ships lay there, I could go under Pelican Pier and pick up four or five shilling of a morning. What was that, though, to father? I hear him say he often made five pounds afore breakfast, and nobody ever the wiser. Them were fine times. There was a good living to be picked up on the water them days. About ten year ago, the fishermen at Lambeth, them as serves their time duly and truly, thought to put us off the water, and went afore the Lord Mayor, but they couldn't do nothing after all. They do better nor us, as they go fishing all the summer when the dredging is bad, and come back in the winter. Some on us down here, note, rothereth, end note, go a deal portering in the summer, or unloading tatoes, or anything else we can get. When we have nothing else to do, we go on the river. Father don't dredge now, he's too old for that. It takes a man to be strong to dredge. So father goes to ship, scraping. He only sits on a plank outside the ship, and scrapes off the old tar with a scraper. We does very well for all that. Why, he can make his half a bull a day, note, two shillings, sixpence, end note, when he gets work, but that's not always. Howsomever, I helps the old man at times when I'm able. I found a good many bodies. I got a many rewards, and a tidy bit of inquest money. There's five shillings, sixpence inquest money at Rotherith, and only a shilling at Deptford. I can't make out how that is, but that's all they give, I know. I never finds anything on the bodies, Lord bless you, People don't have anything in their pockets when they gets drowned. They are not such fools as all that. Do you see them two marks there on the back of my hand? Well, one day, I was only young then, I was grabbling for old rope in church hole when I brings up a body, and just as I was fixing the rope on his leg to tow him ashore, two swells comes down in a skiff and lays hold of the painter of my boat and tows me ashore. The hook of the drag went right through the trousers of the drowned man and my hand, and I couldn't let go nohow, and though I roared out like mad, the swells didn't care, but dragged me into the stairs. When I got there, my arm and the corpse's shoe and trousers were all covered with my blood. What do you think the gents said? Why, they told me as how they had done me good in towing the body in, and ran away up the stairs. Though times ain't near so good as they was, I manages purty tidy, and hasn't got no occasion to holler much. But there's some of the dredgers as would holler, if they was ever so well off. End quote. Of the sewer hunters. Some few years ago, the main sewers, having their outlets on the riverside, were completely open so that any person desirous of exploring their dark and uninviting recesses might enter at the riverside and wander away provided he could withstand the combination of villainous stenches which met him at every step, for many miles in any direction. At that time it was a thing of very frequent occurrence, especially at the spring tides, for the water to rush into the sewers, pouring through them like a torrent, and then to burst up through the gratings into the streets, flooding all the low-lying districts in the vicinity of the river, till the streets of Shadwell and Wapping resembled a Dutch town, intersected by a series of muddy canals. Of late, however, to remedy this defect, 
the commissioners have had a strong brick wall built within the entrance to the several sewers. In each of these brick walls there is an opening covered by a strong iron door, which hangs from the top, and is so arranged that when the tide is low, the rush of the water and other filth on the inner side forces it back and allows the contents of the sewer to pass into the river, whilst when the tide rises the door is forced so close against the wall by the pressure of the water outside that none can by any possibility enter, and thus the river neighbourhoods are secured from the deluges which were heretofore of such frequent occurrence. Were it not a notorious fact, it might perhaps be thought impossible that men could be found who, for the chance of obtaining a living of some sort or other, would day after day and year after year continue to travel through these underground channels for the offscouring of the city. But such is the case, even at the present moment. In former times, however, this custom prevailed much more than now, for in those days the sewers were entirely open and presented no obstacle to anyone desirous of entering them. Many wondrous tales are still told among the people of men having lost their way in the sewers and of having wandered among the filthy passages, their lights extinguished by the noisome vapours, till faint and overpowered they dropped down and died on the spot. Other stories are told of sewer hunters beset by myriads of enormous rats, and slaying thousands of them in their struggle for life, till at length the swarms of the savage things overpowered them, and in a few days afterwards their skeletons were discovered, picked to the very bones. Since the iron doors, however, have been placed on the main sewers, a prohibition has been issued against entering them, and a reward of five pounds offered to any person giving information so as to lead to the conviction of any offender. Nevertheless, many still travel through these foul labyrinths, in search of such valuables as may have found their way down the drains. The persons who are in the habit of searching the sewers call themselves shoremen or shore workers. They belong in a certain degree to the same class as the mudlarks, that is to say, they travel through the mud along shore in the neighbourhood of shipbuilding and ship-breaking yards for the purpose of picking up copper nails, bolts, iron and old rope. The shoremen, however, do not collect the lumps of coal and wood they meet with on their way, but leave them as the proper perquisites of the mudlarks. The sewer hunters were formerly, and indeed are still, called by the name of toshers, the articles which they pick up in the course of their wanderings along shore being known among themselves by the general term tosh, a word more particularly applied by them to anything made of copper. These toshers may be seen, especially on the Surrey side of the Thames, habited in long greasy velveteen coats, furnished with pockets of vast capacity, and their nether limbs encased in dirty canvas trousers, and any old slops of shoes, that may be fit only for wading through the mud. They carry a bag on their back, and in their hand a pole seven or eight feet long, on one end of which there is a large iron hole. The uses of this instrument are various. With it they try the ground wherever it appears unsafe before venturing on it, and when assured of its safety, walk forward steadying their footsteps with the staff. Should they, as often happens, even to the most experienced, 
sink in some quagmire. They immediately throw out the long pole armed with the hoe, which is always held uppermost for this purpose, and with it seizing hold of any object within their reach, are thereby enabled to draw themselves out. Without the pole, however, their danger would be greater, for the more they struggle to extricate themselves from such places, the deeper they would sink, and even with it they might perish, I am told, in some part, if there were nobody at hand to render them assistance. Finally, they make use of this pole to rake about the mud when searching for iron, copper, rope, and bones. They mostly exhibit great skill in discovering these things in unlikely places, and have a knowledge of the various sets of the tide, calculated to carry articles to particular points, almost equal to the dredgermen themselves. Although they cannot pick up as much now as they formerly did, they are still able to make what they call a fair living, and can afford to look down with a species of aristocratic contempt on the puny efforts of their less fortunate brethren, the mudlarks. To enter the sewers and explore them to any considerable distance is considered, even by those acquainted with what is termed working the shores, an adventure of no small risk. There are a variety of perils to be encountered in such places. The brickwork in many parts, especially in the old sewers, has become rotten through the continual action of the putrefying matter and moisture, and parts have fallen down and choked up the passage with heaps of rubbish. Over these obstructions, nevertheless, the sewer hunters have to scramble in the best way they can. In such parts they are careful not to touch the brickwork overhead, for the slightest tap might bring down an avalanche of old bricks and earth, and severely injure them, if not bury them in the rubbish. Since the construction of the new sewers, the old ones are in general abandoned by the hunters, but in many places the former channels cross and recross those recently constructed, and in the old sewers a person is very likely to lose his way. It is dangerous to venture far into any of the smaller sewers branching off from the main, for in this the hunters have to stoop low down in order to proceed, and from the confined space there are often accumulated in such places large quantities of foul air, which, as one of them stated, will cause instantious death. Moreover, far from there being any romance in the tales told of the rats, these vermin are really numerous and formidable in the sewers, and have been known, I am assured, to attack men when alone, and even sometimes when accompanied by others, with such fury that the people have escaped from them with difficulty. They are particularly ferocious and dangerous if they be driven into some corner whence they cannot escape, when they will immediately fly at any one that opposes their progress. I received a similar account to this from one of the London flushermen. There are, moreover, in some quarters, ditches or trenches, which are filled as the washer rushes up the sewers with the tide, in these ditches the water is retained by a sluice, which is shut down at high tide, and lifted again at low tide, when it rushes down the sewers with all the violence of a mountain torrent, sweeping everything before it. If the sewer hunter be not close to some branch sewer, so that he can run into it, whenever the opening of these sluices takes place, he must inevitably perish. The trenches, or water reservoirs, for the cleansing of the sewers, are chiefly on the south side of the river, 
and as a proof of the great danger to which the sewer hunters are exposed in such cases, it may be stated that not very long ago a sewer on the south side of the Thames was opened to be repaired. A long ladder reached to the bottom of the sewer, down which the bricklayer's labourer was going with a hod of bricks, when the rush of water from the sluice struck the bottom of the ladder, and instantly swept away ladder, labourer, and all. The bricklayer, fortunately, was enjoying his pint and pipe at a neighbouring public house. The labourer was found by my informant, a shore worker near the mouth of the sewer, quite dead, battered and disfigured in a frightful manner. There was likewise great danger in former times from the rising of the tide in the sewers, so that it was necessary for the shoremen to have quitted them before the water had got any height within the entrance. At present, however, this is obviated in those sewers where the main is furnished with an iron door towards the river. The shore workers, when about to enter the sewers, provide themselves, in addition to the long hole already described, with a canvas apron which they tie round them, and a dark lantern similar to a policeman's, this they strap before them on the right breast, in such a manner that on removing the shade the bull's eye throws the light straight forward when they are in an erect position, and enables them to see everything in advance of them for some distance. But when they stoop, it throws the light directly under them, so that they can then distinctly see any object at their feet. The sewer hunters generally go in gangs of three or four for the sake of company, and in order that they may be the better able to defend themselves from the rats. The old hands who have been often up, and every gang endeavours to include at least one experienced person, travel a long distance, not only through the main sewers, but also through many of the branches. Whenever the shoremen come near a street grating, they close their lanterns and watch their opportunity of gliding silently past unobserved, for otherwise a crowd might collect overhead and intimate to the policemen on duty that there were persons wandering in the sewers below. The shore workers never take dogs with them, lest their barking when hunting the rats might excite attention. As the men go along, they search the bottom of the sewer, raking away the mud from their hole, and pick, from between the crevices of the brickwork, money or anything else that may have lodged there. There are in many parts of the sewers holes where the brickwork has been worn away, and in these holes clusters of articles are found which have been washed into them from time to time, and perhaps been collecting there for years, such as pieces of iron, nails, various scraps of metal, coins of every description, all rusted into a mass like a rock, and weighing from a half hundred to two hundred weight altogether. These conglomerates of metal are too heavy for the men to take out of the sewers, so that, if unable to break them up, they are compelled to leave them behind, and there are very many such masses, I am informed, lying in the sewers at this moment, of immense weight, and growing larger every day by continual additions. The shoremen find great quantities of money, of copper money especially. Sometimes they dive their arm down to the elbow in the mud and filth, and bring up shillings, sixpences, half-crowns, and occasionally half-sovereigns and sovereigns. They always find the coins standing edge uppermost between the bricks in the bottom, 
where the mortar has been worn away. The sewer hunters occasionally find plate, such as spoons, ladles, silver-handled knives and forks, mugs and drinking cups, and now and then articles of jewellery. But even while thus in luck, as they call it, they do not omit to fill the bags on their backs with the more cumbrous articles they meet with, such as metals of every description, rope and bones. There is always a great quantity of these things to be met with in the sewers, they being continually washed down from the cesspools and drains of the houses. When the sewer hunters consider they have searched long enough, or when they have found as much as they can conveniently take away, the gang leave the sewers, and, adjourning to the nearest of their homes, count out the money they have picked up, and proceed to dispose of the old metal, bones, rope, and so on. This done, they then, as they term it, quack the whole lot. That is, they divide it equally among all hands. At these divisions, I am assured, it frequently occurs that each member of the gang will realise from thirty shillings to two pounds. This, at least, was a frequent occurrence some few years ago. Of late, however, the shoremen are obliged to use far more caution, as the police, and especially those connected with the river, who are more on the alert, as well as many of the coal merchants in the neighbourhood of the sewers, would give information if they saw any suspicious persons approaching them. The principal localities in which the shore hunters reside are in Mint Square, Mint Street, and Kent Street in the borough, Snowsfields, Bermondsey, and that never-failing locality between the London Docks and Rosemary Lane, which appears to be a concentration of all the misery of the kingdom. There were known to be, a few years ago, nearly two hundred sewer-hunters, or toshers, and, incredible as it may appear, I have satisfied myself that, taking one week with another, they could not be said to make much short of two pounds per week. Their probable gains, I was told, were about six shillings per day all the year round. At this rate, the property recovered from the sewers of London would have amounted to no less than £20,000 per annum, which would make the amount of property lost down the drains of each house amount to one shilling fourpence a year. The shore hunters of the present day greatly complain of the recent restrictions, and inveigh in no measured terms against the constituted authorities. They won't let us in to work the shores, say they, cause there's a little danger. They fears as how we'll get suffocated, at least they tells us so, but they don't care if we get starved. No, they doesn't mind nothing about that. It is, however, more than suspected that these men find plenty of means to evade the vigilance of the sewer officials, and continue quietly to reap a considerable harvest, gathered whence it might otherwise have rotted in obscurity. The sewer hunters, strange as it may appear, are certainly smart fellows, and take decided precedence of all the other finders of London, whether by land or water, both on account of the greater amount of their earnings, and the skill and courage they manifest in the pursuit of their dangerous employment. But like all who make a living, as it were, by a game of chance, plodding, carefulness, and saving habits cannot be reckoned among their virtues. They are improvident even to a proverb. With their gains, superior even to those of the better-paid artisans, 
and far beyond the amount received by many clerks, who have to maintain a respectable appearance, the showmen might, with but ordinary prudence, live well, have comfortable homes, and even be able to save sufficient to provide for themselves in their old age. Their practice, however, is directly the reverse. They no sooner make a hall, as they say, than they adjourn to some low public house in the neighbourhood, and seldom leave till empty pockets and hungry stomachs drive them forth to procure the means for a fresh debauch. It is principally on this account that, despite their large gains, they are to be found located in the most wretched quarter of the metropolis. It might be supposed that the sewer hunters, passing much of their time in the midst of the noisome vapours generated by the sewers, the odours of which, escaping upwards from the gratings in the streets, is dreaded and shunned by all as something pestilential, would exhibit in their pallid faces the unmistakable evidence of their unhealthy employment. But this is far from the fact. Strange to say, the sewer hunters are strong, robust and healthy men, generally florid in their complexion, while many of them know illness only by name. Some of the elder men, who head the gangs when exploring the sewers, are between sixty and eighty years of age, and have followed the employment during their whole lives. The men appear to have a fixed belief that the odour of the sewers contributes in a variety of ways to their general health. Nevertheless, they admit that accidents occasionally occur from the air in some places being fully impregnated with mephitic gas. I found one of these men, from whom I derived much information, and who is really an active, intelligent man, in a court off Rosemary Lane. Access is gained to this court through a dark, narrow entrance, scarcely wider than a doorway, running beneath the first floor of one of the houses in the adjoining street. The court itself is about fifty yards long, and not more than three yards wide, surrounded by lofty wooden houses, with jutting abutments in many of the upper stories that almost exclude the light, and give them the appearance of being about to tumble down upon the heads of the intruders. This court is densely inhabited, Every room has its own family, more or less in number, and in many of them, I am assured, there are two families residing, the better to enable the one to whom the room is let to pay the rent. At the time of my visit, which was in the evening, after the inmates had returned from their various employments, some quarrel had arisen among them. The court was so thronged with the friends of the contending individuals and spectators of the fight that I was obliged to stand at the entrance, unable to force my way through the dense multitude, while labourers and street folk with shaggy heads, and women with dirty caps and fuzzy hair, thronged every window above, and peered down anxiously at the affray. There must have been some hundreds of people collected there, and yet all were inhabitants of this very court, for the noise of the quarrel had not yet reached the street. On wondering at the number, my informant, when the noise had ceased, explained the matter as follows. You see, sir, there's more than thirty houses in this here court, and there's not less than eight rooms in every house. Now there's nine or ten people in some of the rooms, I knows, but just say four in every room, and calculate what that there comes to. I did, and found it, to my surprise, to be nine hundred and sixty. Well, continued my informant, 
chuckling and rubbing his hands in evident delight at the result. You may as well just tack a couple of hundred on to the tail of them for make-weight, as we are not very particular about a hundred or two one way or the other in these here places. In this court, up three flights of narrow stairs that creaked and trembled at every footstep, and in an ill-furnished garret, dwelt the shore-worker, a man who, had he been careful, according to his own account at least, might have money in the bank and be the proprietor of the house in which he lived. The sewer-hunters, like the street-people, are all known by some peculiar nickname, derived chiefly from some personal characteristic. It would be a waste of time to inquire for them by their right names, even if you were acquainted with them, for none else would know them, and no intelligence concerning them could be obtained, while under the title of Lanky Bill, Long Tom, One-Eyed George, Short-Arm Jack, they are known to everyone. My informant, who is also dignified with a title, or, as he calls it, a handle to his name, gave me the following account of himself. Quote, I was born in Birmingham, but afore I recollects anything, we came to London. The first thing I remembers is being down on the shore at Cuckold's Pint. When the tide was out and up to my knees in mud, and a getting down deeper and deeper every minute, till I was picked up by one of the shore workers. I used to get down there every day to look at the ships and boats a-sailing up and down. I'd never be tired a-looking at them at that time. At last father prenticed me to a blacksmith in Bermondsey, and then I couldn't get down to the river when I liked, so I got to hate the forge and the fire and blowing the bellows and couldn't stand the confinement nohow. At last I cuts and runs. After some time they gets me back again, but I cuts again. I was determined not to stand it. I wouldn't go home for fear I'd be sent back, so I goes down to Cuckold's Pint, and there I sits near half the day, when who should I see but the old un as had picked me up out of the mud when I was a-sinking. I tells him all about it, and he takes me home along with hisself, and gets me a bag and an o, and takes me out next day, and shows me what to do, and shows me the dangerous places, and the places what are safe and how to rake in the mud for rope and bones and iron, and that's the way I come to be a shore-worker. Lord bless you, I've worked Cuckold's Pint for more nor twenty year. I know places where you'd go over head and ears in the mud, and just alongside on them you may walk as safe as you can on this floor. But it don't do for a stranger to try it. He'd very soon get in, and it's not so easy to get out again, I can tell you. I stayed with the old un a long time, and we used to get lots of tin, especially when we'd go to work the sewers. I liked that well enough. I could get into small places where the old un couldn't, and when I'd got near the grating in the street, I'd search about in the bottom of the sewer. I'd put down my arm to my shoulder in the mud, and bring up shillings and half-crowns, and lots of coppers, and plenty other things. I once found a silver jug as big as a quart-pot, and often found spoons and knives and forks and everything you can think of. Bless your heart, the smell is nothing. It's a roguish smell at first, but nothing near so bad as you thinks, cause you see there's such lots of water always a-coming down the sewer, and the air gets in from the gratings, and that helps to sweeten it a bit. There's some places, especially in the old sewers, where they say there's foul air, and they tells me the foul air'll cause instantious death but I never met with anything of the kind, and I think if there was such a thing, 
I should know something about it, for I've worked the sewers off and on for twenty year. When we comes to a narrow place as we don't know, we takes the candle out of the lantern and fastens it on the head of the O, and then runs it up the sewer, and if the light stays in, we knows as there ain't no danger. We used to go up the city sewer at Blackfriars Bridge, but that's stopped up now. It's boarded across inside. The city wouldn't let us up if they knew it, cause of the danger, they say, but they don't care if we haven't got nothing to eat nor a place to put our heads in, while there's plenty of money lying there and good for nobody. If you was caught up it and brought afore the Lord Mayor, he'd give you fourteen days on it, as safe as the bellows, so a good many on us now is afraid to venture in. We don't venture as we used to, but still it's done at times. There's a many places, as I knows on, where the bricks has fallen down, and that there's dangerous. It's so delaborated that if you touches it with your head, or with the bend of the o, it'll all come down atop o' you. I've often seed as many as a hundred rats at once, and they're whoppers in the sewers, I can tell you. Them there water rats, too, is far more ferociouser than any other rats, and they'd think nothing of tackling a man, if they found they couldn't get away nohow. But if they can, why, they runs by and gets out of the road. I knows a chap as the rats tackled in the sewers. They bit him hawfully. You must ha' heard on it. It was him as the watermen went in arter, when they heard him a-shouting as they was a-rowing by. Only for the watermen the rats would have done for him, safe enough. Do you recollect hearing on the man as was found in the sewers about twelve year ago? Oh, you must. The rats eat every bit of him, and left nothing but his bones. I knowed him well. He was a regular shore worker. The rats is very dangerous, that's certain. But we always goes three or four on us together, and the varmint's too wide awake to tackle us then, for they know they'd get off second best. You can go a long way in the sewers if you like. I don't know how far. I never was at the end on them myself, for a cove can't stop in longer than six or seven hour, cause of the tide. You must be out before that's up. There's a many branches on every side, but we don't go into all. We go where we know, and where we're always sure to find something. I know a place now where there's more than two or three hundredweight of metal, all rusted together, and plenty of money among it too, but it's too heavy to carry it out, so it'll stop there, I suppose, till the world comes to an end. I often brought out a piece of metal, half a hundred in weight, and took it under the heart of the bridge, and broke it up with a large stone to pick out the money. I found sovereigns and half-sovereigns over and over again, and three on us has often cleared a couple of pounds apiece in one day out of the sewers. But we no sooner got the money than the publican had it. I only wish I'd back all the money I've got to the publican, and I wouldn't care how the wind blew for the rest of my life. I never thought about taking a hammer along with me into the sewer, no. I never thought I'd want it. You can't go in every day, the tides don't answer, and they're so particular now, far more particular than formerly. If you was known to touch the traps, you'd get hauled up afore the beak. It's done for all that, and though there is so many eyes about, the johnnies on the water are always on the lookout, and if they sees any on us about, we has to cut our lucky. We shore workers sometimes does very well other ways. When we hears of a fire anywheres, we goes and watches where they shoots the rubbish, and then we goes and sifts it over, and washes it afterwards, and then all the metal sinks to the bottom. The way we does it is this here. 
We takes a barrel cut in half and fills it with water, and then we shovels in the siftings and stirs em round and round and round with a stick. Then we throws out that water and puts in some fresh and stirs that there round again. After some time the water gets clear and everything heavy's fell to the bottom, and then we see what it is and picks it out. I've made from a pound to thirty shilling a day at that there work on lead alone. The time the Parliament houses was burnt, the rubbish was shot in Hyde Park, and Long Jay and I goes to work it. And while we were at it, we didn't make less nor three pounds a piece a day. We found sovereigns and half-sovereigns, and lots of silver, half-melted away, and jewellery such as rings and stones and brooches. But we never got half paid for them. I found two sets of bracelets for a lady's arms, and took them to a jeweller, and he tried them just where the great heat had melted the catch away, and found they was only metal double-plated, or else he said as how he'd give us thirty pounds for them. Howsomever, we takes them down to a Jew in Petticoat Lane, who used to buy things off us, and he gives us seven pounds ten shillings for em. We found so many things that at last Long Jay and I got to quarrel about the whacking, there was cheating a goin on it wasn't all fair and above board as it ought to be so we gets to fightin and kicks up sich a jolly row that they wouldn't let us work no more and takes and buries the hole on the rubbish there's plenty of things under the ground along with it now if anybody could get at them there was just two loads of rubbish shot at one time in bishop bonner's fields which i worked by myself and what do you think i made out of that there why i made three pounds five shillings the rubbish was got out of a cellar, what hadn't been stirred for fifty year or more, so I thinks there ought to be something in it, and I keeps my eye on it and watches where it's shot. Then I turns to work, and the first thing I gets hold on is a chain which I takes to be copper. It was so dirty, but it turned out to be all solid gold, and I gets one pound five shillings for it from the Jew. After that I finds lots of coppers and silver money, and many things besides. The reason I likes this sort of life is cause I can sit down when I likes, and nobody can't order me about. When I'm hard up, I knows as how I must work, and then I goes at it like sticks a-breaking. And though the times isn't as they was, I can go now and pick up my four or five bob a day, where another wouldn't know how to get a brass farden. End quote. There is a strange tale in existence among the shore workers of a race of wild hogs inhabiting the sewers in the neighbourhood of Hampstead. The story runs that a sow in young, by some accident, got down the sewer through an opening, and wandering away from the spot, littered and reared her offspring in the drain, feeding on the offal and garbage washed into it continually. Here, it is alleged, the breed multiplied exceedingly, and have become almost as ferocious as they are numerous. This story, apocryphal as it seems, has nevertheless its believers, and it is ingeniously argued that the reason why none of the subterranean animals have been able to make their way to the light of day is that they could only do so by reaching the mouth of the sewer at the riverside, while in order to arrive at that point they must necessarily encounter the fleet ditch which runs towards the river with great rapidity, and, as it is the obstinate nature of a pig to swim against the stream, the wild hogs of the sewers invariably work their way back to their original quarters, and are thus never to be seen. What seems strange in the matter is 
that the inhabitants of Hampstead never have been known to see any of these animals pass beneath the gratings, nor to have been disturbed by their gruntings. The reader, of course, can believe as much of the story as he pleases, and it is right to inform him that the sewer hunters themselves have never yet encountered any of the fabulous monsters of the Hampstead sewers. End of section 28